Well, hello there. Good evening and welcome to that Haunt Guy podcast. Your home of hauntings, true crime, maybe the old cult and, well, anything else on that spooky side of life. My name is Mark and I'll be your disembodied voice of a host this evening. The year is 1697 and an insidious idea has befallen a town. The actions of a little girl and the superstitions of the community will lead to over 30 people being accused of a heinous crime. You see, these poor souls were in fact accused of witchcraft. This, however, isn't Salem. This is Scotland. And these are the Bargadon Trials. So I invite you, please, sit back, relax, and let us spiral in together, shall we? Scotland is no stranger to a history of myths and legends, and where these exist, so did tales of witches. Our tale this evening begins with one Christian Shaw, an 11-year-old girl who lived in the town of Paisley, just outside of Glasgow, Scotland. She was the third daughter of five to John Shaw, who was a wealthy landowner in the town. One evening Christian was walking to her room when she passed the kitchen, and she spotted one of the family's servants stealing a mouthful of milk. That is great alliteration, as always. When Shaw saw this, she ran to inform her mother. The servant in question, a Miss Catherine Campbell, screeched after the young Christian that she wished the devil himself to drag her soul through hell. And these are words that she would certainly live to regret. On the evening of the 22nd of August 1696, five days following the incident, Christian could be heard screaming for help from her bedroom. As her mother and father, along with some of the house servants, ran to her aid, what they witnessed was extremely disturbing. They claimed they saw their daughter writhing around on the bed, almost as if she was fighting an unseen force. In the days that followed, young Christian began to fall into illness, presenting in the form of violent fits eerily similar to the girls involved in the Salem Witch Trials of 1693. It was even claimed by her father that when his daughter was first started having these symptoms, where's this accent came from? It was even claimed by her father that when his daughter first started having these symptoms, she appeared to levitate and then be thrown from the bed. At the time of this happening, he believed it was Christian herself somehow causing this to happen. This view, however, would soon change. Over the next few days, Christian complained of constant pain and she continued to fall into seizures, with her body contorting into unnatural positions against her will. And if you've seen a movie like The Exorcist or The Exorcism of Emily Rose, you know just how disturbing this could be for someone to witness in real life. The family of Christian became gravely concerned and decided to seek the help of one Dr. Matthew Brisbane. Dr. Brisbane was an esteemed physician in the Glasgow area for his time. On examination, he said he could find no specific ailment for what was afflicting the girl and sent them back to Paisley without treatment of young Christian, recommending only bed rest. These ailments of contortion would continue to happen each night. Christian's father would sit by her bedside and claim he would witness her talking to someone during these fits. He said it would start with her murmuring, but would soon escalate to Christian begging for the pain to stop, all while writhing around on the bed as if fighting this dark, unseen entity. 
After eight more days of this, the family once again sought the help of Dr Brisbane, who this time came to their home so he could witness these happenings for himself. It was clear to him that Christian had deteriorated greatly since he last saw her, and that the symptoms had worsened. While Dr Brisbane sat with her mother and father through the night observing her, he witnessed Christian violently coughing before pulling balls of hair from her mouth. And even more strangely, the hair did not appear to be that of Christian. On seeing this, Dr Brisbane said he could find no earthly reason for what was afflicting the girl, before commenting that the family should speak to the church and swiftly left. Before long, Christian pulling strange and alien objects from her mouth was a regular occurrence. These would include items such as straw, gravel, eggshells, chicken bones and even burning cinders. In the morning times, when the bouts of seizures and other strange unearthly symptoms had finally stopped, her father plucked up the courage to ask her who it was she was talking to during these events. She told her father that two women were visiting her in the night, and it was them that were causing these afflictions to happen. She named the two women, one Catherine Campbell, the servant who had cursed after her in the devil's name, and the other she named as one Agnes Naismith. Now, Agnes Naismith was an elderly woman who lived in Paisley, and in the town there already existed whispers that she may be a witch. You see, it was not uncommon for this to be believed about elderly women back in the day. However, many feared to accuse her to her face, or to any authority, in case these whisperings were true out of fear that Naismith would lay a curse upon them and their families. You see, with the whisperings, she carried with her a reputation that she could make atrocities happen to people simply with her words, and this instead resulted in her living as an outcast within the community. When Christian was asked why Naismith would also be visiting her, the girl claimed that she had crossed paths with her the day after the family servant had put a curse upon her, and she believed Agnes Naismith, sensing the curse of the servant girl's words, had sealed it. For two more weeks, Christian would claim that Campbell and Naismith would visit her as spectres in the night. She said they were trying to break her bones, burn her flesh, and that they forced her to eat ghastly things. The same things that she would later regurgitate. When the family heard Youngshaw quote Bible verses to the two unseen women, they decided to heed the words the doctor had said to them, and took Christian to her local minister. On hearing of her afflictions, he concluded without hesitation that she was possessed through the darkness of witchcraft. Swiftly after this, the church set up weekly prayer meetings where the dangers of witchcraft were preached about. The congregants would also pray for young Shaw's soul while fasting. You see, it was believed in those days that by doing these actions it would allow an insight into the spirit world and in the sake of Christian, it would force the evil spirits afflicting her to expose themselves so they could be banished. The young Shaw's father also took it upon himself, using his wealth to sway the authorities, to ensure that those named by his daughter as causing these afflictions were arrested for the crime of witchcraft. Initially Christian had only named Campbell and Naismith, However, as time wore on, she began to implicate more individuals and began to, in her mind, expose that Paisley Town was rife with witches. 
Again, something much too similar to the events that happened in Salem. In total, Christian accused 21 people in the town of being involved with witchery. Is witchery a word? I'm going with it. You know what I mean. Now, these were a precursor to the actual court hearings, and the purpose of them was to see who of the accused would actually stand trials for the claims of witchcraft. The 1600s, however, were a very corrupt time for authorities, as power and money spoke much more than the truth, so it's not too different from today. A healthy offer to these authorities of money or land would see to it that they would overlook the accusation against the individual, but also take heed of who they warned investigators to be witches. When the young Shaw girl's accusations and these new accusations were taken into account, 35 people in total ended up accused of the crime. Now, interestingly, some of the 35 accused actually confessed to being witches. One, Elizabeth Anderson, in return for her freedom, admitted that she often saw the devil appear to her in the night. She said that he would appear in a shadow form and that he always came accompanying her grandmother, who was still alive at the time. She continued to say that for the last seven years she was part of a coven of witches in Paisley, and that some of the members in this coven were helping to torment the young Shaw's soul. Another individual, uh, Thomas Lindsay, at first protested his innocence. However, as time passed, he soon wavered, and in this he admitted to the authorities that he had signed his name in the Devil's Book. He went on to claim that the Devil was in fact his own father, who could fly like a crow into the night at will. He continued to say that his father could cast a curse upon the town and surrounding farms. Thomas also claimed that witchcraft ran in his family and that his cousins James and John had regular meetings with fellow witches, and meetings with his father, the devil himself. Throughout the town, investigations like this continued. Many of the accused reached a deal with the authorities, that if they were to give the name of other witches in the town, as well as return to the church to pray for forgiveness before the Lord, they would earn their freedom. During these investigations, individuals known as witch-pickers were also brought in to help find those practising witchcraft. A witch-picker's job, indeed, was to test those accused of witchcraft by examining their bodies for the devil's mark. Sometimes this could be something obvious like a mole or a birthmark, and sometimes, well, less so. The test was always the same, however. A simple pinprick on the body to see if the spot would bleed. If it didn't, well, this was seen as proof that the accused had clearly made a pact with the devil, that no pain or affliction could become them. Now, as I said, if the mark was obvious, that would be the first place they would test. However, if this failed, or if the accused didn't have any obvious marks, then the expertise of the witch-picker came into practice. They would strip their victim completely naked and shave them top to toe. They would then take their pin and push it into the victim's body, over and over 
and over again until the right spot was found. Now, as I say this to you, my dear listener, also know this. This wasn't a small pin we would find in our granny's sewing kit. You know the one. You think it's going to be a delicious biscuit. You open it, full of needles and thread. Well, not one of those kind of needles. No. This pin was made for the sole purpose of finding a witch. It was extremely thick and often made so it would penetrate the skin by several inches over and over again. You see, the witch picker had to be sure they'd found the right spot of the devil's mark. And many individuals who were subject to this over the years of witch hunts that we've had in this country would even confess just to get this torture to end. Once a witch picker had finished their investigation, they would report their findings back to the Scottish Council. And in the 1600s, a witch picker's word was considered in court to be as definite as our modern DNA evidence. So these people were extremely influential. At the end of these investigations, seven people were ultimately chosen to stand trial. Our first two, of course, being Catherine Campbell and Agnes Naismith, who needs no further explanation as, of course, they were the first two women accused by Shaw. Next was Margaret Lang, who confronted Christian in her bedchamber. Now, Christian initially said that she was not one of the tormentors. However, as Lang left Christian's bedside, the young Shaw fell into another violent fit claiming that Lang was now the one who caused it. Lang was then arrested for questioning before she had even left the Shaw property. Next was James Lindsay, a boy of 14. He had actually confessed that he was being visited by his deceased grandmother's spirit, and he also claimed that behind her always stood a figure of translucent darkness, a shadow figure that would be to you and I. Check out my Types of Hauntings podcast if you don't know what that is. He said that his grandmother would tell him to take the hand of the shadow. As it was his grandmother asking, young James obliged and reached out his hand. When the shadow figure reached out to touch James, he claimed to the investigators that he felt a cold chill pass right through his body. He then said that the shadow asked him if he would be willing to serve it and in return the shadow would give James mortal possessions of clothing or money for as long as he lived. James, being a 14-year-old boy on hearing this, and of course trusting his dead grandmother, replied at once, yes, of course, I will do it. And in this instant his grandmother and the shadow disappeared. James said during the trial that he now knows this to be the devil, and that he was tricked. However, locals who gave testimonies against him accused the 14-year-old of attending many coven meetings in the surrounding woods, and they testified that he took pleasure in his service of the devil. The next accused was one John Lindsay, the 11-year-old brother of James Lindsay, and this was really a case of guilt by association. It was said by the locals to the jury of the court that wherever James went, so did John. 
and unfortunately for him, this meant into the woods to convene and conspire with other witches. It was also claimed that together the boys would be seen often walking through the town's graveyard, which led to further accusations, and these were accusations of necromancy. John Reed was another who was accused by the townspeople. He was a married man and worked as a smith. When he was accused, he was held in the Renfrew Tollbooth, an old Scottish jail, for investigation. At first, Reed adamantly denied any involvement in the practice of witchcraft. However, as time wore on, he eventually confessed to having entered service with the devil. During his confession to the authorities, he said that the devil had promised him that he would be rewarded with material comforts in return for his mortal soul upon his death. Reed followed up by placing one hand on top of his head and the other on the sole of his foot, symbolising submission and showing that his entire being now belonged to Satan. And finally, the last accused was Margaret Fulton, an elderly woman in the Paisley area, but with a reputation that spread much further than that. You see, Margaret was described as a beggar wife by the people of the community, and this means that she would have been reliant on the charity of the people passing her in the street. And with this, it meant many people came to know who she was when she approached them, and she was subsequently shunned by the town. Margaret may sound similar to our Agnes Naismith, but let me tell you, dear listeners, she was in a much, much more unfortunate position than Agnes. And to be honest, she didn't really help her own case. This is due to the fact that as she begged the locals for money, she would shout at them about fairies and other supernatural entities she claimed to see around them. And this ended up gaining her a reputation around the central belt of Scotland, not just Paisley, of Margaret being a seer and a conjurer. Was this a case that Margaret was in fact a true witch? Perhaps. However, it's much more likely that Margaret suffered from mental illness due to her living conditions. Not that this would stop the commission, the witch pickers, or the court from standing her up for trial. In the trial itself, the commission heard statements from all 35 people who had been accused. This is where many wild and concocted stories were thrown around. These are to ensure that they would not be reprimanded with the seven standing trial, and also from spite of the people they may not like from the seven. It was one statement, though, that truly shifted how the proceedings would move forward. And this was a statement of the minister James Hutchison, someone already renowned in Scotland for his ability to root out the witches. Religion in the Renfrewshire area where Paisley sits was seen to be a form of governance, and following these trials, religion from the time would be seen to try to have an overbearing attempt to control the lives of the people who attended church. And for those who did not want to attend, they would be punished by the church for lacking what they called moral sense. If you also haven't guessed by now, belief in the devil as a true force of evil in the world was rife throughout Scotland, not just in Paisley, and it was taken extremely seriously by the clergy at large. 
And this is why a minister's words in these days could hold so much power. The Minister Hutchison took his place on the podium in front of the commission at the courthouse and began his crusade against the accused. He began by delivering what was akin to a sermon, telling all those in attendance that the devil hated the very existence of all of them. He went on to say that Paisley was once a spiritually pure area and that this made the devil angry and this is why there were so many witches at work here. He used Christian Shaw as an example claiming that she was in a battle between the forces of good and the forces of evil, and only through a godly act of ridding the area of witches could she win this battle. He also went on to cast doubt upon the physicians who had testified, claiming, And however doctors may say such things of the witches, Mark, we know not upon which ground, it may be that they have in fact been bubbed and bribed to say such things. This is a very interesting point, um, given the fact that many also bribed their way out of standing trial. I'm sure you would agree, listeners. He finished this sermon, however, with damning words. He told the jury of the court that if they acquitted those who stood before them, they would be an accessory to those who blaspheme against the Lord, and if they do not get judged in this life, they certainly would in the next. And it was this statement that sealed the fate of the seven standing trial. They were all found guilty of the heinous crime of witchcraft and were sentenced to death. All seven were held in the Glasgow Cross tollbooth until their execution date. However, one wouldn't make it this far. James Reed took it upon himself to commit suicide by hanging himself in his prison cell by means of his handkerchief tied to a nail in the cell wall. The remaining six on the day of the 10th of June 1697 were marched from the tollbooth down to Glasgow Green where they would meet their fate. They were first to be hanged so their mortal souls would perish and then burned so their blackened supernatural souls would be destroyed. John and James, our 11 and 14 year olds respectively, were led up to the gallows first. They didn't say anything, but reportedly fell to the noose while holding hands. Margaret Fulton was then brought up to the gallows, who by this point appeared to have lost all grips with reality. As the noose was being placed around her neck, she spoke cheerfully to the executioner about her visits to the lands of elves and fairies, who rode on the backs of magical horses. It was even claimed by some in attendance that after her hanging, her face kept a contented smile upon it. Margaret Lang, as a last-ditch attempt, announced to the crowd she would admit to dancing with the devil. However, she had renounced her sin before the Lord and that she had reconciled with God. The noose took Lang before she had even finished her pleats. Agnes Naismith was then brought to her final moments, but not before laying a dying woman's curse upon everyone present at the hangings and their families for generations to come. This was said to have caused an audible gasp by all those in attendance, and in fact for many years after her execution anything bad that happened in the town of Paisley was blamed on the witch Naismith's curse. Finally, Catherine Campbell, 
The one who had started all of this with her cursing of Christian Shaw was brought to the noose kicking and screaming her innocence. She then turned her face skyward and screeched, I call upon the wrath of God and Beelzebub against all ye who have accused me. When the hangings had came to an end, the bodies were removed from the gallows and were taken to be burned. It has been said, however, that not all of the condemned had passed when the burnings began, and that the executioner even took a walking stick from one of the onlookers in attendance to push back in moving limbs from the flames. And with this, it concluded the last mass execution of witchcraft in Western Europe. Now, what became of the girl who started all of this, you may ask? Well, Christian Shaw went on to leave another, very different mark in Scotland in her latter years. She married twice, first to a reverend who sadly passed away, and then to a glove maker when she moved to Edinburgh in 1720 where she lived the rest of her days in Leith. During this time, she became a very successful businesswoman involved in the growing manufacturing industry, setting up a sewing school, and she even invented what is now known around the world as the Bargarin Thread. Christian Shaw died on September 8th, 1737, and is buried in Greyfriars Kirkyard in Edinburgh, where her grave still stands today. It's also one of my absolute favourite places to visit. If you're ever in Edinburgh, make sure you check out Greyfriars Kirkyard. Now, before we end this tale, dear listeners, let us consider, were these trials the ramblings of a little girl which were taken too seriously and too far? Or was the devil really at work in Paisley? Why did so many of the accused admit to dancing with the devil as a plea to stop them hanging, or as eternal servitude to their master. And of course, let's not forget Christian Shaw and her future success. Could it be in fact that it was her who made a deal with the devil, killing many in her community? It is interesting that she was the one who went on to be successful. Something that those who agree to servitude of the ways of the devil receive in return. It's even said indeed that Satan himself whispered the making of this thread into Shaw's ears when she was younger. But ultimately, we will never know if this was widespread hysteria, or if witches truly did dance in Paisley. And with that, dear listeners, we bring an end to our tale of the Paisley Witches. I would just like to thank you all for listening with me this evening. I, of course, have been Mark, or That Haunt Guy. You can feel free to follow me on this podcast or for any future ones. And on Instagram, at That Haunt Guy, all one word. And why not share me with your friends? Share this spooky love. But apart from that, have a night filled with supernatural curiosity. And watch out for that entity behind you. And always, stay spooky. Until next time.